Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. Lucy Cross Wallace, who's now an undergraduate at Stanford University, acknowledges that, until very recently, she was insufferable. Wallace, who's on the autistic spectrum, doesn't apologize for her activism on behalf of issues connected to autism, but she does regret that her activism brought her into the orbit of a doctrinaire social justice subculture that she now regards as counterproductive. In a recently published article in Quillette, the author describes social justice cultism, as she now describes it, as a sort of addictive drug that made her feel righteous and morally superior. Then she looked around and noticed that the activists in her community seemed to talk a lot more about kindness than actually practicing it. No one seemed happy, and everyone seemed curiously brittle, as if they knew deep down that their militant slogans were a cover for the same sort of personal doubts that we all have, regardless of political ideology. Like many young people, she learned that life is complicated and comes in shades of grey, even if we pretend that the solutions are all in black and white. This week, I spoke to Lucy Cross Wallace over the phone for the Quillette podcast. Here are excerpts from our conversation. There's a certain stereotype of young activists who often maybe come from very privileged backgrounds and don't have a lot to complain about. But in your case, you actually did face challenges and continue to face challenges because you're on the spectrum. Tell us how that affected your approach to social justice. I spent, I think I wrote about this in the piece, I spent a lot of years as a teenager in hospitals and psychiatric treatment centers. And I remember vividly coming back to high school. This was the last semester of senior year, and I'd been gone for about a year. And I remember coming back and being just baffled by the way my classmates were talking about social justice and the way this these complaints about racism and injustice and oppression were interspersed with like, I don't know if I'm going to go to Dartmouth or Yale. And I remember thinking, well, I hope my friends are still alive and that their insurance doesn't cut them off from life-saving treatment. So I don't know if we have much to relate on. The activism framework has never made much sense for mental illness and disability because mental illness is mental illness. It's not the product of an oppressive society. So I think that initially... I, I felt like there was a lot of dissonance between the hardships I'd experienced and the way people understood suffering to only come in the form of oppression. And I think that once I got to Stanford, I, fi- I had figured out a way, this set of beliefs about ableism and being marginalized because I am disabled, that was a way for me to understand the difficulties I faced through a more socially acceptable framework. But I, I've now come to see that there, there are just a lot of human experiences that the oppressor-oppressed binary doesn't encapsulate and doesn't describe well. You describe in your Quillette article how there are theories which cast any kind of disability as, am I getting this right, as a social construct? That it, there's a social theory of disability? Yes. 
So typically this is described as the social model of disability in contrast with the medical model. The social model in its um, strictest, perhaps purest forms, um, sees disability as society disables the person. And the most commonly cited example is the deaf community. Um, the idea being that if you are deaf in a hearing community, you will face uh, barriers to communication. But if you're deaf in a deaf community, then being deaf and signing, uh, those are the norm. And so I think that then the medical model would be like, it doesn't matter how accommodating your society is. Multiple sclerosis is multiple sclerosis or COVID is COVID. And I think that most disabilities, medical conditions fall somewhere in between. I, I, I think that social support is absolutely necessary and, and important for disability. And I think there are elements of the social model um, in that our society could do a much better job of accommodating disability. But I, I don't buy the super radical idea that all of disability is purely a social construct. You describe how a very rigid us versus them approach, it's kind of addictive because it makes everything seem very righteous but I guess it makes it difficult to see the nuance that's necessary to formulate public policy. The only way to really fix the mental health care system is with a nuanced approach. Does social justice help or hinder that approach? From what I have seen, it hinders the approach. So I can give you an example from Stanford. Stanford is very much the, the social justice culture is strong and predominant, I would say. And it's the sort of victimhood culture where this us versus them social justice mentality is encouraged. And there were, I think, two mental health events or weeks or months. Everything is an awareness month nowadays, so I have trouble keeping track. But there were a few times where they came up with an entire program of events that were supposed to raise awareness and break down the stigma of mental illness and all of these things. And the sessions were like Black people in mental illness, Latinx people in mental illness, and none of them were actually about mental illness. It was like this bizarre imposition of the traditional intersectional oppressed categories on something that's really a medical issue. So I think that the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy clouds people's perceptions so significantly that they lose track of the real problems of the fact that the white straight man on the street with schizophrenia who has been homeless for 15 years is at the bottom of the intersectionality hierarchy and way less privileged than many college activists. You had seen the inside of psychiatric hospitals in many different places, and so you saw people in real crisis, in real pain. And yet you were on the hunt for these what by comparison are fairly marginal transgressions. And as examples, you say an offensive headline on BuzzFeed, or you went to an art gallery and you saw there were flashing lights, which could be triggering to someone with epilepsy. How did that balance in your head? The two-word answer is cognitive distortions. Autistics tend to be very rigid thinkers, uh, very black and white. There is a lot of catastrophization. So seeing one small thing and enumerating the possible outcomes to the point where I would see those flashing lights and quickly convince myself that I was living in an oppressive, ableist society. 
And these were the same cognitive distortions, ironically, um, that were parts of my illness. And when they were obsessions that were clearly irrational, ruining my life, they were seen as something to be treated. But I think that because I had made this all about ableism, I, I was I had a harder time seeing how irrational it was and seeing it that it, there were the same underlying mechanisms. And I think other people were perhaps reluctant to confront me about it. It sounds like there's a slippery slope between people who are just extremely anxious or have OCD and are maybe very anxious about their personal lives, like they have to check the lock seven times before they leave the house or they see a stranger in their neighborhood and they think their house is going to be robbed. When we see that kind of behavior, we recognize that it's weird and maybe self-destructive. But if you extrapolate it to the sociological level and you say, well, there was this negative headline in BuzzFeed, that means people are going to die. Sometimes that actually gains approval from society because you're seen as on the side of social justice. Did you see some of the social justice stuff as a sort of extrapolation of some of the personal anxieties we feel about privacy and integrity and safety? The way I describe it is I went from my own personal version of madness to a socially sanctioned madness. I think that social justice movements amplify and feed on cognitive distortions. And this is what I've noticed in recent months with Black Lives Matter and trans activists, all all the things that are popular and the way they seem to be fueled by anxiety, a need to conform a tendency toward dichotomous thinking, a tendency to focus on the negatives and discount the positives. Obviously, the social justice movement isn't a classic cult in the sense that there's a compound where everybody has to go for indoctrination and eat the same foods and dress the same and stuff like that. But when I talk to you, you have the tone of somebody who was in a cult and is now self-aware about it. Is that sometimes how you feel? Yes. I talk in the article about how a friend sent me a link to New Discourses. Tell us what New Discourses is. Yes, it is a website created by James Lindsay, who, along with Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian, did the grievance studies hoax. So essentially they wrote 20 fake papers in what they call grievance studies fields, um, elements of the social sciences that have been sort of taken over by this intersectionality mindset to expose shoddy work in those fields. And now New Discourses is a site where he has an encyclopedia of social justice terms and just analyzes and breaks down critical theory, anti-racism. How did that get past your defenses in the social justice mindset you were in? How did you even read past the first sentence knowing that this was part of the enemy? So this is a good question. I didn't know any of the counter arguments to what I was arguing, and I tried to stay away from them. I think that if you ask many of the people who are now really deep into this intersectional feminism, what is the case against what you're saying, they probably won't have an answer. I had a sort of gag reflex to anything that could make me uncomfortable. And the reason I was, the reason that got past my defenses is because the anti-racism thing had gotten so deep into me and was, was really taking a toll on my sanity. And I had started to see some of some of the logical inconsistencies. And I think at that point, I was, I was desperately confused about, am I really systemically 
individually racist and a horrible person who needs to repent for the rest of eternity. And I think the anxiety surrounding that made me desperate enough to get over my trepidation and read the site. See, that's the thing about the emotional state of somebody who is an activist. And this isn't just about social justice activism. On the one hand, you're trying to make the world a better place. And on social media, there's a lot of hashtags and hand clapping emojis, allyship and that sort of thing. But it sounds like under the surface, there's this kind of brittleness because maybe there's this insecurity you're not dealing with that all of these slogans you're saying aren't actually true. Was that going on, on on an unconscious level? And maybe you just needed someone like James Lindsay to kind of let it all out? Yeah, I was fragile. I was resistant to reality. I was rigid in my beliefs. And had it been a website that attacked the social model of disability, I probably would not have read it. Actually, the the website that came before New Discourses was Everyday Feminism. I've, I've been to Everyday Feminism. Seven things you shouldn't say to polyamorous people. And I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> Just seven? <laughs> One article was how polyamory is more difficult when you're disabled. <laughs> Sorry, they, I shouldn't laugh. Just to be clear, I, I'm making fun of the website, not disabled people, let alone polyamorous disabled people, because God knows they face so many challenges. I might like out myself here, I for a brief while had a blog called Ava the Everyday Feminist, because I was like, what happens if someone actually abides by all of these rules? They were on first dates, I added them up from like seven different articles, total of maybe 100 questions you're supposed to ask. So I wrote this fictional character who goes on a bunch of dates and is how do you work to dismantle cis heteronormativity in your everyday life the moment she meets the guy? But, but sorry, you did this as satire? As satire, yes. Okay. Well, so, <laughs> okay. So this article actually exists. This is on Everyday Feminism, which is a site people actually visit. Like, just to be clear, it probably gets millions of hits a week. It says, here are seven reasons why polyamory is more difficult when you're disabled. Now, this came out in 2018. It sounds like that was a period when you were heavily into the social justice thing. If you had seen this at the time, or maybe you did, would you have been like, yeah, I'm going to tweet that out. That's important information. Or was this too much even for you at the time? That was a bit too much. That was too much. And then they'd have these lists of like ways people with mental illness are oppressed in college. And I read them and I'm like, nope, sorry, these have happened to me. It's not oppressive. This is just how college works. So a combination of James Lindsay's thorough intellectual takedowns of the critical theories, and then just this level of ridiculousness and realizing how comically extreme my beliefs had become. I think it was that combination that that made me realize I could step away from this social justice mindset and the world would keep turning. It's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. 
Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. In some cases, the Blinkist summary is just enough for me. Other times, I'm so interested that I go out and buy the book and read it cover to cover. Either way, thanks to Blinkist, I know which books deserve my time most. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. So you describe how you once co-hosted something called a Disability Day of Mourning vigil, and you mourned all the people who were disabled and had been killed by their caregivers. And by the way, you mentioned that this is something that does happen, and it's a horrible crime, and a lot of the time it gets a lot less attention than other kinds of crimes because it happens behind closed doors. But you also describe how this performative thing you did was kind of over the top. And you quote from your own presentation, you say, these murders are the product of a society that sees autistic people as violent and soulless and less than human. The rhetoric here is over the top, but there's a grain of truth here, right? Yeah, when autistic people are murdered by caregivers, it's usually presented as something they do out of mercy, which is just horrific. So the problem wasn't drawing attention to that. The problem was the way I had regurgitated these extreme views and also implicated myself in it, when the truth is just because I have the same label attached to me, I am I, I have virtually nothing in common with the people we were mourning. And so it was this conflation of the personal and political that detracted from goals of that event, I think, and that made me see the world in an increasingly irrational way. You have this great line here. You say, living in fight mode was electrifying. What was the biggest high moment you got from that kind of electrifying experience? There were. There was a time where I published an article in the Stanford Daily about my experience of autism, and I got a lot of emails from people, some of them thanking me, some of them saying, I'm autistic or I have an autistic sibling, and this really helped. So so that felt good. And then there was also the way in which this mindset made it easier for me to belong at Stanford. Because when you preface your sentences with, as a disabled, blah, 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 or when you use the word hegemonic, or when you say microaggression, a lot of it is this like ritualistic, um, performative set of customs, but that facilitates belonging. And so I think that was part of the incentive for me to continue with it. Were there people in your life who, who knew you well enough that they could be like, look, come on, I know who you are, this isn't who you are. Did you have any conversations like that? I did not have conversations like that. I think that my family tried 
And I think it is also hard when you are the parent of a 19-year-old and you are saying anything that your 19-year-old doesn't like, especially when it's charged. Okay, but since then, in the last couple of months, have they said to you, oh God, we like this version of you better? I read the article to them the night before it went out. My, I finished and my dad goes, I feel like I was there for a lot of that. <laughs> Huge relief for them. And it's good because I'm not yelling at them about ableism all the time. It's better for everyone. One theory I have about social justice radicalism is that it actually to some extent hurts some of the good work that's been done like I think with trans people I think there was a lot of good educational stuff that came out of social justice uh, you know when I was I'm much older than you and when I was younger uh, people who are trans back then they were often called transvestites and stuff like that they were you know the subject of mockery there was absolutely no understanding they were the butt of jokes no one wanted to treat them with any kind of dignity or whatnot. It was just assumed to be like a sexual perversion. And we make fun of social justice extremists, but the fact is social justice activists did help us understand the problem of gender dysphoria. And they have helped us understand autism. They've helped us understand a lot of things. Do you sometimes worry that a lot of the good work that social justice advocates stand for might actually paradoxically be hurt because it often comes in such an off-putting package. Yes, I worry about that a lot. And, and I'm still involved in autism advocacy because there are issues, and the issues are not people saying person with autism or autistic person. It's actually a lot less important than, for example, the fact that during COVID, people with intellectual disabilities, at least in New York, were dying at a rate of 2.5 times higher than the state. And I read in the article, during that time, I was more worried about people buying the wrong products on Amazon. So I think that people pay lip service to these causes, detracting from the actual importance of them and making them seem so extreme and adversarial that they lose supporters. If, this, if social justice were just this crazy movement built on a fantasy and completely irrational. We could throw it out. We could ignore it, but we can't throw out social justice because there is substance and meaning to it. And that makes it harder and more important. So one of the problems with the internet is it never forgets. And on one hand, it never forgets our offensive comments. So if you make a racist joke on your Facebook page when you're 15 years old, people will find it 10 years later. But it also never forgets our social justice phase. And you describe here that at one point, fairly recently, when you were in your social justice phase, you made this series of videos educating people. And <laughs> it sounds like you're not super proud of the strident tone of these videos. Maybe these videos, maybe some stuff you put on social media. I'm guessing a lot of that is still available on the web. How do you feel about that? I don't know. I'm certainly not proud of it. I also, at the same time, part of why I wrote this article is because I think we need a precedent of people changing their minds. I think there is a whole generation of people who have eagerly embraced all of the social justice stuff, and eventually most of them will break. Eventually they will realize that the bar for wokeness just keeps rising and they can't keep up, and they're going to reach this kind of breaking point that I describe. And so what I want to do is not hide my past actions or cover it up, but 
set an example of changing one's mind. Have you been contacted by anybody who was was with you in some of these social justice struggles who maybe now feels betrayed because you no longer feel the same way, you wrote an article for Quillette? No, part of it is that most of my relationships were, a lot of them were through Tumblr. If anyone would feel betrayed, it would be people on Tumblr and I'm no longer on Tumblr. Tumblr, of course, is a video site, Mm. but is Tumblr popular in the social justice community? Oh my gosh, it's, yeah. It sounds like like I asked a dumb question. It's like... (laughs) It's, it's a swamp, yeah, a swamp of cognitive distortions and social justice fanatics where I think a lot of people get radicalized. Once you got off Tumblr, you weren't as vulnerable because that was the medium through which people would come at you? Yes. And there's also, I thought about this before, even before I started thinking about criticizing, especially the anti-racism framework, I thought about all these people are getting canceled. Can I get canceled? And I figured no. And ironically, I think it's in part because I am autistic. I don't have a friend group. I don't really care if people at Stanford shun me. I have individual relationships with individual people. And if any of one of them doesn't want to be my friend because I published something in Quillette, then that, that might be for the best. This episode of the Quillette podcast is brought to you by Magic Spoon Cereal, a high protein, low carb solution for people who love their cereal, but also want to eat healthy. Like many of the people listening to this, I went through my low-carb phase a few years back, but I gave it up because I couldn't resist familiar foods, breakfast cereal in particular. And that's where Magic Spoon comes in. Magic Spoon isn't literally magic, like Gandalf the Grey from Lord of the Rings, but it is magic in the idiomatic sense. How else to describe a delicious and satisfying breakfast cereal that contains zero sugar, 12 grams of protein, and only 3 net grams of carbs in each serving? Like you, I was skeptical, which is why I insisted on trying Magic Spoon before recording this ad. I also served it to my wife and daughters, who enjoyed it as much as I did, and are pestering me to get more, in fact. After tasting the whole product line, I can attest that the fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors are delicious. Magic Spoon also comes in cocoa flavor. I'm also supposed to emphasize that, as well as being low-carb, Magic Spoon is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and GMO-free. And that's all true, no doubt, but the magic thing about this product, the reason it makes the magic happen in your cereal bowl, as it were, is that it achieves all this without tasting like something you might find in a health food store medicine cabinet. If you want to experience some of the same magic, go to magicspoon.com slash quillette to grab a variety pack. And be sure to use our promo code quillette with two L's and two T's at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed by what they call a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash Quillette and use the code Quillette for free shipping. Thanks to Magic Spoon for their sponsorship. And now back to our podcast. I'm wondering what your advice is for a sibling or a parent or a friend who who has someone in their life who goes hard down the social justice rabbit hole. You you say, well, it was, it was James Lindsay who helped you come out, and I'm sure it was, although it sounds like you already had done 90% of the work inside your brain. For somebody who isn't yet at that stage, how do you deal with it? Do you just have to let it play out as in any cult? Is there something somebody could have said to you a couple of years ago that would have helped you along the process? It's funny because 
you ask this and I'm I'm immediately drawing on the many times in like therapy groups when people have asked me what should I say to my loved one who is deep in the grips of this I think that there is a difference between validating how someone feels and validating what they think my fear about the world being um, an ableist hell was very real, even though it was based on thoughts that were not very grounded in reality. So I think it is possible to acknowledge how someone is feeling and just acknowledge, not like you must be stressed because the world is a terrible place, but I can tell that you're stressed. This is one of the very basic pieces of advice that they will give you in therapy groups for communication. I think it also would potentially help to be to be very honest and non-judgmental. Again, I'm sounding like a therapist, but so if someone had said to me something like, I know you're really passionate about this social justice advocacy. I can also understand why this makes sense to you in terms of what you've been through in the social environment that you're in. It seems like it's getting sort of extreme and it's also taking a toll on your health. These are just things I'm saying because I care about you and you might not be able to observe them about yourself because we all have blind spots in terms of self-awareness. I think that kind of approach is probably going to be the, the most effective. And, and it's difficult because particularly the anti-racist stuff does get cult-like in the way it encourages people to cut toxic people out of their lives. And if your family member is not sufficiently committed to doing the anti-racist work for the, there's cutting that out. So I think- Which by the way, unfortunately that's very typical of cults. Exactly. So I think that there needs to be a balance between trying to help the person in question get out of that mindset and taking care of yourself and not getting sucked into the insanity. You had one line in your piece about how at Stanford, one of the professors basically just cut class and said, hey, go out and protest or something. And this was as the Black Lives Matter protests were reaching a crescendo. Where do professors stand in all this? It sounds like some actually encourage it. Oh, absolutely. It was only after learning all this that I realized just how much they encourage it. I remember one professor bringing up the idea of critical consciousness, which I didn't know was a Marxist concept that had made its way through to critical theories. And everyone was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. There was no counter argument. There was no alternative. That was just the way things were. There are so many courses that are adopting this intersectional framework. One of the final requirements for a class was to create an Instagram post advertising Black Lives Matter. So presumably, if you don't agree with Black Lives Matter, you don't get to take the class or you do get to take the class and you go against your values. Um, so I think that's part of what makes it so hard. I, I actually wonder how much of grading has to do with this, because I would imagine that some professors are terrified and for good reason of marking down an intersectional project and then being accused of racism. It runs very deep in the universities. Can you get credit for creating an Instagram account for Quillette? Try. When I go back, I'm going to introduce these ideas. And they, they recently started an acts of intolerance process. So if someone makes sexist jokes or defaces an LGBTQ plus flyer, you can go through a process of restorative justice with them facilitated by the university. Wow. That, that all sounds like such an incredible use of well-educated people's time. Lucy Cross Wallace... 
Her article at Quillette is called My Brief Spell as an Activist. Thanks so much for being on the Quillette Podcast. The end. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.